following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Today we start a five-week series on the triune God, and it's not going to be so much a systematic theology or apologetic on the Trinity, but it's going to be more of a tour de force on the greatness and the beauty and the majesty of God. We're going to start with a look at the greatness and majesty of God in Isaiah 6, and I hope that we would stand back in awestruck wonder at the beauty and the glory and the holiness of God, that we would behold our God and see how God's holiness makes us humble. Next week, we'll focus on the Father, then the Son, after that, and after that, the Holy Spirit, and then week five, on delighting in God. But to know the Trinity is to know God, the eternal, personal God of infinite beauty, infinite wonder. David, the psalmist, desired all the days of his life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, Psalm 27. You do that, and your life will never be the same. Michael Reeves said it this way, the triune nature of God affects everything from how we listen to music to how we pray. It makes for happier marriages, warmer dealings with others, better church life. It gives Christians assurance, shapes holiness, and transforms the very way we look at the world around us. No exaggeration, the knowledge of this God turns lives around. I want you to know, as you go through this, I want you to know God better. I want you to know God in increasing measure, that you would, as a result of beholding God's glory, know God increasingly. And I want you to know right off the bat, there will be no silly illustrations of the Trinity, such as uh, three parts of an egg, or water, or a shamrock leaf, or a three-headed giant. Uh, We are going to explore the revealed mystery of God Almighty. And we will see how people responded to God's self-revelation of himself, uh, the triune God revealing himself, and we will see how we ought to respond. Because I want us to grow in our delight in God, our enjoyment of God, uh, to see how the triune God makes all his ways beautiful, to taste and see, as the psalmist said, to taste and see that the Lord is good, that your heart would be captivated and refreshed in God, that you would grasp the the majesty of God, the beauty of God, the the overflowing kindness of God. And so to, to start, this might be a bit different than you think we would be going on a series on the Trinity. To start, we're going to take a step back and behold the wonder of our God and his ways in Isaiah chapter six. So take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter six and please stand with me as I read God's word. We stand to honor God and his word as they did in Nehemiah chapter eight. And I will read the inspired and errant infallible word of God. I'm going to read Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 13. This is God's word. 
In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal. He had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your magnificent purposes. Thank you, Lord, that you are holy. That you're holier than all. That you are the holiest. And thank you, Lord, that we could even be alive today, that we could even come into this room, that we could even hear your word being read and have air in our lungs and thoughts in our minds. And Lord, may, may we bow before your majesty. May we be awestruck at your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Isaiah had opportunity to know and to see God, to behold his majesty, to be humbled and transformed because God's holiness humbled him to serve God's purposes. D.L. Moody said that Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody, 40 years learning he was nobody, and 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. But what if you're here today and you're hearing these words and you feel no desire to know God? That you feel like your heart is cold Maybe there's no inclination to love God. Well, Isaiah chapter six gives the remedy. God's holiness humbles you to serve his purposes. Now, Isaiah has 66 chapters. 
Uh, except for the four middle chapters, the whole book is poetry, oracles, and prophecy. Chapters 1 through 35 is about judgment and the threat from Assyria. Chapters 36 to 39 is a bridge. Uh, 36 and 37 about Jerusalem's miraculous deliverance from the armies of Sennacherib of Assyria. Chapters 38 and 39, forecasting exile in Babylon. And then you get to chapters 40 to 66, salvation, uh, return from Babylonian captivity, relief after the deliverance followed by news that Judah would be conquered. So you've got judgment in Isaiah. It starts with judgment, but it doesn't end in doom. It ends in hope, promising the coming of a new exodus, a new creation, final atonement for Israel's sins, uh, the destruction of present Jerusalem, but the promise of a new Jerusalem and the new creation. And the problem in Isaiah that the people had is captured very well in chapter 29, verse 13. These people, God says, draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. So there's depravity. There's a disloyalty. and It ends in debauchery. They're trusting the wrong things. We know what this is like. They're trusting other kings. They're trusting other gods. They're trusting others. They're trusting themselves. They must trust the holy God. So you come to Isaiah 6, and it is like this magnificent sunrise piercing the darkness, the awe-inspiring, majestic greatness and holiness of God, a dazzling display of glory set against the dark cloud doomsday backdrop of fallen humanity, the utter purity of God shining in, in its obvious perfection. And it beckons us to reject our multiplied plastic idols and worship this holy God. Chapter 6 focuses our attention on on this holy God. In the first four verses, you see God's self-revelation. The holiness of God, verse 1, tells us that it was in the year that King Uzziah died, around 739 B.C. A king dies, an era ends. He had a notably long life, a prosperous reign, 52 years as king, leprosy killed him. And Isaiah began his prophetic ministry that year, the year that King Uzziah died. He received the prophecies of the first five chapters after his call that he now recounts in Isaiah chapter 6. He says, I saw the Lord. Now how could he see God if no one can see God and live? No one has ever seen God, John 1.18. In his essential being, he is spirit. Well, he graciously condescends to give some sort of revelation of himself to Isaiah. Isaiah was allowed to see the Lord, Adonai, the sovereign. You see the majesty of God. He sees God high and lifted up from a distance. There is a throne, greatly elevated. It emphasizes the most high God. The train of his robe refers to the the hem or the fringe of the Lord's glorious robe that filled the temple. Here he was in an earthly temple getting a transcendent vision of God's throne in the heavenly temple. You have robes and a throne and attendants at the throne. There's this sense of majesty. God's sovereignty is real. He sits on the throne, the seat of authority, the seat of power. 
He is high and lifted up. He is exalted. He is majestic. He is glorious. In verse two, the seraphim, these angelic creatures similar to the four living creatures in Revelation four, who resemble cherubim in Ezekiel 10, these seraphim are heavenly beings, literally burning ones. Their their name comes from seraph, meaning burning. It's the only time you see the seraphim in the Bible, and they have six wings. What a sight. Two wings are covering their faces. They dare not gaze at the glory of God. Two are covering their feet, acknowledging their lowliness as they're engaged in in the service of God. And then with two wings, they're flying, serving God. And one cries to another. Verse three, they're speaking to one another in praise to God. They're in the position of servants standing waiting on a seated master. And this scene just constantly moves. It's almost getting us dizzy. They're covering, they're flying, they're continually moving, and they're, all, they're doing it at God's direction. You notice they covered their eyes, not their ears, because with their ears they would receive a word from God. They would hear what God was saying. And they're crying out to one another, in a continuous song, and the theme is the holiness of God, his presence and his glory in every place. They cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. I remember when I was a child, I loved singing in church the song, holy, holy, holy. I wasn't a believer, but I loved that song. Holy, holy, holy emphasizes God's separateness from and his independence from his fallen creation. It's repeating. Hebrew uses repetition to express totality. Holiness is the supreme truth about God. Holy, holy, holy. Now this verse does not teach the Trinity. This is not a Trinitarian verse. This is building. The repetition is like this. God is holy. God is holier than all. God is the holiest one. The seraphim are saying, holy, holy, holy to one another. They are delighting themselves in God. They are delighting themselves in God for his infinite holiness and his all-encompassing glory. They're not just repeating themselves. They are emphasizing who God is. We are not talking here about one plus one plus one. We are talking about perfection times perfection times perfection. The splendor of the holiness of God, as the psalmist writes in Psalm 29.2. The majesty of the holiness of God, as we see in Exodus 15.11. The peerlessness of God's Holiness, as you see in Isaiah 40, verse 25. It's it's God's godness. It's his godness in all his works and ways. It's who he is. He is holy. And the seraphim sing, the whole earth is full of his glory. A worldwide display of his immeasurable glory and perfections and attributes as, as seen in creation. Romans 
Romans 1.20, you can see this in creation. Fallen man refuses to glorify God as God, Romans 1.23. Holy, holy, holy. See, God is not like us, just bigger and better. He's in a totally different category. He is holy. And he is not just everywhere and out there. He is right here with his people. You can think about this. Why would a holy God create anything at all? He was complete. He was never lonely within the amazing fellowship of the Trinitarian Godhead. Why would God even create us? Because he is so great. Because he is so holy. It is his delight to fill his creation with his glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. We keep building monuments to our glory and God keeps tearing them down. One glimpse of God's glory devastates us. It's like a spiritual MRI. You know you're not in charge. Your life's in the hands of another. God's holiness is so far above human thought that a super superlative had to be invented. Holy, holy, holy. You break down the idea of holiness and you find the ideas of brightness and separateness. Brightness suggesting that God dwells in unapproachable light as 1 Timothy 6.16 tells us, as Psalm 104 tells us. Separateness defines God, his, his total and unique moral character and perfection and majesty, his holiness. And so it is no wonder that holy fear results when we see the difference between us and God. There is a gulf, there is a difference. The message of the entire Old Testament can be summed up in holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. T.D. Alexandra says the concept of holiness is exceptionally important within the biblical story, especially for understanding the fulfillment of God's creation blueprint that the entire earth become his temple city. Holiness is closely associated with God, for he alone is innately holy. Throughout scripture, you see God's distinctive characteristic is holiness. God himself is the supreme manifestation of holiness. Holiness emanates from God. In fact, anything coming in contact with God becomes holy. Moses at the burning bush told to remove his sandals because God's presence made the ground holy. The Israelites go with Moses to Mount Sinai. The upper regions of the mountain become holy because of the presence of God. God radiates holiness to everything near him. Therefore, the inner sanctum of the tabernacle is the holy part of the tabernacle. The further away you, you go from the holy of holies, the less holy everything becomes. You think about the tabernacle in the wilderness. You've got the priests, holy. The Israelites, clean inside the tabernacle. Everyone outside, unclean. In verse four, we read that the temple is shaken. That the foundation of the thresholds are shaken and that the house is filled with smoke. He can't go in and he can't see. Isaiah cannot go in. The shaking and the smoke 
uh, symbolizing God's holiness as it relates to his wrath and judgment. Shaking is the reaction of earth to God's presence. And you see here that it's concentrated on the doorposts and on the thresholds. Isaiah is prohibited from going in, and he's prohibited for seeing what's going on. So here, when the king in whom the people trusted dies, King Uzziah, Isaiah is allowed to see the real king high and lifted up, the one that God's people should always have trusted. And God uses Isaiah to show that he alone is uniquely worthy of our worship and our trust. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Again, sums up the entire idea of the whole Old Testament. This idea of holiness, God's separateness, his, his separation from his creation. God is holy. It shows us everything that makes him different from his creatures. It shows his Greatness, the majesty on high, as Hebrews 1.3 puts it, the purity, as Habakkuk 1.13 says, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on iniquity. So man, because of his weakness as a sinful creature, must humble himself and be reverent before God. This is where the fear of the Lord comes in, knowing your littleness, confessing your sins, clinging to his promise of mercy. That should undergird everything. Verses five through seven give us this picture of, of the ruin that Isaiah felt as he was in the presence of a holy God. It plays up the sinfulness of man. Here God is giving him a vision of his majestic holiness so overwhelming, it brought him face to face with his sinfulness. This thrice holy God, utterly unique and separate, cannot tolerate sin in his presence. And so Isaiah is expressing his ruin, that he is wrecked in God's presence. He, he expresses his abject unworthiness. In verse five, he says, in despair, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm lost. I must be silent. Woe is used of the silence following disaster or death. He's speechless due to the shock and the grief of seeing himself for what he really is. Silence is telling in this context. He's excluded from the heavenly choir. He's forbidden even to join from afar in the adoration, and the silence of death overwhelms him. He is wrecked. How different from we who so easily and flippantly come into God's presence with unconfessed sin, with, with barriers to fellowship. We, we ignore them. We think that if we talk enough or we sing loud enough, it will cover everything and we don't realize we need to be silent. You know, to fear God is not to be conscious of being a person in the presence of God. To fear God 
is to be conscious of being a sinful person in the presence of a holy God. We're broken. We're unclean. We see this very easily in the physical realm. We break our bones. We break down. Our bodies deteriorate. The strongest are injury prone. We're unclean. In the physical realm, we must continually bathe so as not to be outcast in society. Body odor is a problem. We use deodorants and perfumes to mask reality. And in the spiritual realm, we are spiritually broken, morally bankrupt, poor in spirit. We are morally unclean. There's uncleanness and defilement. And and we think, well, unclean lips is not that bad of a sin. What does it matter that I gossip about people? What does it matter that I slander them? What does it matter that I say things that I regret? But what we see here is if the lip is unclean, so is the heart. The vision of God's holiness vividly reminds Isaiah of his own unworthiness, which deserved judgment. Job and both reacted similarly. They both came to the same realization when confronted with the presence of the Lord. God the Lord, God the King, Almighty, the Holy One of Israel, What he's doing as he is revealing himself to Isaiah is he's preparing him to do something for him. Unlike the seraphim, Isaiah's lips are unclean. He realizes something. He realizes he's not better than anyone else. He realizes I'm just like the people that I live amongst. And it brings us to the idea of regeneration. It's a biblical word where God causes the dead to live. And when it happens to you, it defines you. Isaiah 6 shows how radically you need God. His work in the hearts of those he saves and then makes holy. God says, you will be holy because I am holy. Everything God touches becomes holy, set apart to him for his use. And so when God's grace renews your heart, you stop putting yourself above others. You don't justify yourself and say, I'm not as bad or I'm better than others. God awakens you to your utter lostness without him. Like Paul would say, I'm the chief of sinners. And so Isaiah blurts out the obvious. He just says, woe is me. These are the first words spoken by Isaiah in his own book. Pronounces a prophetic himself. His mouth is not filled with flippant repetitions or self-justifying excuses. Isaiah sees himself because he sees God. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. God initiated the self-revelation, and humility marks Isaiah's heart. Brokenness, repentance, uh, grace melts resistance. And so in verses six and seven, God assures the prophet that he is cleansed, that he is forgiven. And the initiative is God's all along. He reveals himself at the first. He even keeps Isaiah out of the temple by the shaking and the smoke. And now he sends his messenger to to the one he has chosen to save. And so the seraphim peels off mid-flight and dive bombs Isaiah. 
with a burning coal that he took from the altar with tongs, not because it was hot, because it was holy. The live coal was fire from the altar. In the Old Testament, fire is not just a cleansing agent, but a symbolic of God's wrath, of his unapproachable holiness. Uh, The perpetual fire in Leviticus on the altar it went to symbolize God's wrath because the altar was the place that God accepted the sacrifice and was satisfied by a blood sacrifice. And so this holy thing touches Isaiah's dirty mouth and does not hurt him, but heals him. Isaiah contributes nothing to the matter. This was from God. This has touched your lips and your iniquity is gone. Your guilt is taken away. This thrice holy, righteous, majestic, God is doing the saving and taking away the sin. You see notes of atonement and propitiation and satisfaction that are required by God. You see notes of forgiveness and cleansing and reconciliation that's needed by people. Through a substitutionary sacrifice brought to Isaiah, all wrapped up in the single symbol of a live coal. In the context of the whole Bible, burning coal symbolizes the finished work of Christ on the cross, who went to the place of sacrifice, and his resurrection love is the only power to raise the dead. Jesus died for our sins in our place as our substitute, was buried, rose on the third day, ascended to the Father, and has promised to return with judgment for those who reject him and blessing for those who believe. In fact, when you're saved by Jesus, the Holy Spirit cleanses your heart and your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Welcome uh, to overwhelming delight of God's presence, awakened by the magnitude of grace to live for God. That's, That's what happens when you come to faith in Christ because your sins were paid for at the cross. Even believers, we know we we still sin. And so we confess our sins as the Holy Spirit convicts us. We confess our sins. And God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because the blood of Jesus continually cleanses those who believe. God's holiness humbles you. Isaiah confesses his sinful words and God deals with his heart. The inner reality of a sinful nature. It comes from the payment of a price. Atone for means pay a price. uh, The price that justice requires. In the Hebrew, it means to cover. God covers your guilt by free grace. It's being released by the judge. Think of money that is sufficient to pay a debt, to cover a debt. This is payment of whatever God's justice says is sufficient to cover a sinner's death, and we know it was death of a substitute, a substitute sacrifice on the altar, the Lord Jesus Christ in our place. We ought to behold our God as we humbly confess our sin. You need to behold your God as you humbly confess your sin. On your best day, you are a dim reflection of God's glory. A stark contrast to to Christ's perfections. You need to fear a hard heart more than anything. You need to beware looking for excuses not to believe or not to follow Christ. You need to beware blaming anyone for the misery that is incurred by your sin. 
You need to beware pointing your finger at others. You need to be awed by God's holiness as you recognize your brokenness and filthiness apart from Christ. The mercy of God tenderizes your heart. And repentance is beautiful. Spurgeon said, my dear friend, I am a poor sinner still, and I have to look to Christ every day as I did at the very first. This vision of the holiness of God makes us startlingly aware of the sinfulness in our hearts. And then you see in verses 8 through 13 what God was bringing about, the purposes of God that he had in mind for Isaiah and for his people. In verse 8, you see that the immediate effect of atonement is reconciliation. Isaiah hears God's voice. For the first time in this passage, God speaks. And it's like God is saying, all right, everyone, here's what I'm going to say to the human race. I want someone to speak as my representative, someone who knows what it means to be forgiven. And Isaiah says, I'm available, I'm willing, I'll go. The question, who will go for us? The answer, here am I, send me. It's interesting that the question, who will go for us, is is a plural. I'm sure you caught that. God is speaking as us. It's called a majestic plural in Hebrew. It's a royal we. It's a plural of consultation. Who will go for us? So what is this majestic plural, and how is it used in the Bible? The majestic plural, the royal plural, is used of a plural word, such as a pronoun, we or us, to refer to a single person. So for example, Queen Victoria, upon hearing a tasteless joke, was said to have replied, we are not amused. She was saying she wasn't amused. The majestic plural indicates greatness and power and prestige. Now four places in the Bible, God refers to himself using plural pronouns. Most well known is Genesis 1.26. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And then you see it again in Genesis 3.22, you see it again in Genesis 11.7, and then here in Isaiah 6. The majestic plural is also found in one of God's most common names in the Old Testament, Elohim. It refers to the one true God. Elohim is plural, is correctly translated as God in the singular. Deuteronomy 4.35 says the Lord is God, literally Yahweh is Elohim. The Shema says the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Singular Lord coupled with plural Elohim. Now this is the verse crystal clear that there is one God. Now his name in the plural indicates that God has sovereign supremacy and matchless might. What the majestic plural is not, it's not meant to teach the doctrine of the Trinity. I think we need to state that right away, that God used it to accentuate his greatness. But the use of the plural to refer to God hints at God's triune nature. It supports the doctrine of the Trinity seen in Scripture. The New Testament relates this passage both to the Lord Jesus in John 12 and the Holy Spirit in Acts 28. And here is what leads to the full revelation of the Trinity in the New Testament. What God says about himself when he uses the majestic plural, us. We need to be careful not to... uh, try to prove the Trinity with verses that do not, upon closer examination, actually provide such proof. God doesn't need our help. 
The Trinity is very clear in the Bible. His Trinitarian identity is clearly seen throughout Scripture. We don't need to lean on verses for proof when those verses do not make that plain. There are plenty that do, and we'll get into those in coming weeks. Plural pronoun does not prove the doctrine of the Trinity, but it strongly implies it. So you see Isaiah going from woe is me to here am I, send me. He is changed, and so God gives him perhaps the toughest assignment any prophet ever had. He said, okay, verses nine and 10, he says, go tell the people not to understand, have hard hearts and spiritual blindness, and that's gonna be what you do. There's no way around the plain meaning of the text here. Uh, They're gonna have a complete inability to understand the word of God. They will not understand or perceive. Now, how did Isaiah take his commission? Well, you see in Isaiah 28, nine, It's said that he spoke with such simplicity and clarity that pridefully sophisticated people mocked him as fit only to teach little babies, to teach infants. Isaiah spoke in plain, clear, reasoned speech. He was a spokesman of a holy God who gave his holy word. And so we preach, as Paul said, not as pleasing man, but as God who knows our hearts. We are not to obscure the message of the word of God. We are to preach it clearly. I think of recent sermons that I have heard over the past several weeks. Steve Lawson and Sinclair Ferguson and Andrew Cortis and Andrew McNeil and Mark Holbrook and Dave Strohs. Different personalities, different styles, all committed to preach expositionally where you read the Bible, explain the Bible, apply the Bible with power and precision and clarity and and that those who hear are to receive it and to listen to it and obey what God says, but here's what Isaiah had. He had the preacher's dilemma. If the hearers resist the truth, here's what you get to do. Tell them again and again and again, and what you will be doing is exposing them to the risk of rejecting truth and increasing the hardness of their hearts, and that the next rejection might be the point of no return. I remember my first car was a 1973 Pontiac Firebird Formula, dual hood scoops, dual exhausts, white Noghide interior. And it came to me as a used car with a broken gas gauge. And until we got it fixed for quite a while, I never knew when it would hit empty. So what I had to do was guess all the time how many miles I could go with a, with a 350 V8. It was a guessing game. You couldn't see it ahead of time, but yes, I ran out of gas. It would just happen all of a sudden. Thought I had measured it correctly and I would just run out of gas. Well, chapter 7 through 11 in Isaiah, the decisive word of God was spoken and refused, and at that moment, they didn't know where they were in the hardness of heart category. What about you? You know, if you have an opportunity now to hear the word of God and to respond to the gospel, it's going to result in either judgment or salvation for you. When you hear the gospel, you're either going to believe it and obey it or not, and all who reject it may get to the point of no return where you kind of just run out of gas, and you won't know until you get there. That's the way it works. God didn't give you a gauge to find out how much you're rejecting Jesus and how hard your heart is. See, Isaiah heard and saw and understood, but many won't. The difference between the regenerate and the unregenerate, those who God has chosen and those who choose to turn away. Paul spoke of his ministry in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16 as a aroma of Christ to the saved and to the perishing. And he put it this way, to some an aroma of life, to those who are being saved, 
and to others the stench of death. Same preaching, two different outcomes. Jesus' parables did the same. God knows how you hear the word. Isaiah 66, 2 says this. God says, to this one I will look. He who is humble and broken in spirit and trembles at my word. May we be awestruck by the holiness of God as seen in his holy word. Isaiah asks, In verse 11 and 12, how long am I supposed to preach this message of judgment? And God says it's going to continue until cities are desolate and the people have gone into exile. There's no false hope here. He knows how it's going to turn out. They're going to hear and refuse the word of God. He knows what's going to happen. He doesn't know when. Uh, In the future, they were deported, 2 Kings 17. That was continued with the captivity of the Babylonians, 2 Kings 24 and 25. And God says in verse 13, a tenth will remain. 90% failure rate. Losses will be 90%. A tenth will return. Most will reject God. A faithful remnant in Israel will hear and believe. Because the king reigns in glory and majesty and the king reigns in judgment. The losses are going to be 90%. The people Israel, uh, Isaiah preaches to will be devastated like a forest cut down. Only the stumps will remain. Those stumps are going to be burned. A collapse of Judah eventually. They refused God. The tree will fall. But the voice says, the holy seed. Verse 13. Alec Matyer put it this way. Hope is the unexpected fringe attached to the garment of doom. Grace appears at the end of this chapter. The burning will clear ground for a new growth. Think back to the 1988 Yosemite fire and seeds of the new forest came out in the fire. Bristlecone pine seeds only released under intense heat. There's life in the stump. In my yard, there's big trees right now that look dead. They had fruit recently. But they're gonna begin to bloom and sprout. That's what happened. Palm trees I have cut down that seem to be gone continue to come back. Uh, perennial flowers reappear. Isaiah 11.1 1 says, there will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Isaiah 11.9 says, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the sea because of God's glory. He reigns. This is the promise of the Messiah. Isaiah's generation would be devastated, but it would not defeat God's salvation purposes. The king reigns and a humble remnant will continue on. God's holiness humbles you and Jesus brings new life. But think about God's salvation emphasis in the Bible. In the gospel, it's not about the difficulty and the danger of approaching a holy God. It is about the boldness and confidence a believer has to approach this holy God because of Jesus. We have boldness and confidence by faith in Christ, Ephesians 3.11. Boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us, we draw near in full assurance of faith, Hebrews 10, 19. And it springs directly from faith in Christ and the knowledge of God's saving work carried out by the Spirit of God. See, those who belong to Christ, the triune holy God is your loving heavenly Father and you belong to his family. And and we're gonna see this even more next week as we speak of the Father. The holiness of God demands humility in us throughout the Bible. We deal with God as our Father, his covenant name. He binds us to himself in a family promise. 
Christians are his children, his sons, his heirs. Jesus in grace will remake the world. And therefore, you must live beholding God's holiness and humbled by Christ, serving his purposes. Isaiah 7, 14 says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 40, verse 9 says, Behold your God. Here is your God. See him. Understand him. John 1, 14, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace in and truth. The believer gets to dwell on the glory of God in Christ. Transform from glory to glory as you meditate on the word of God. You behold in a mirror of the word of God continually the glory of God in Christ, in the word. Your, your inner being changes. Your outer life is renewed. It's from God who sends his spirit. God is one God in Trinity. God is the Trinity in unity. And you cannot craft God or sculpt God according to your expectations or your assumptions or anyone else's imagination but as he alone has revealed himself in his holy word. Our triune God is at work to bring glory to himself. We behold him, we, we see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And we will see this as, as we go on in these weeks. In Christ, indwelt by the spirit of God, you are free to serve God's purposes. Behold your God. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we, we could not even speak right now or think a thought good about you except for your spirit awakening our souls in Christ because of the gospel. Oh Lord God, you are holy. You are Holier than all, you are the holiest. And we are blown away in awestruck wonder that you would call us to yourself in Christ, that we would be able to behold your glory. We praise you for that truth. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.